I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Psalm 13. Having finished our study in 1 Timothy, we last Sunday night looked at a psalm, and now I'd like again this morning to look at one, a good occasion to look at a few psalms, the songbook that God has given to his people. By the way, I wasn't going to, or I don't know if I should say anything or not, but Joyce Taylor this week said that she thinks she'll have to stop coming for worship since it's getting too hard for her, but she was very sad to to make that choice, so maybe we could pray that the Lord will either strengthen her or give her much comfort, and we could reach out to her as well and encourage her. Psalm 13, the inscription to the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's ask for God's help. O gracious God in heaven we come to a psalm that reminds us that we suffer and teaches us how to suffer well. And we pray, Lord, you grant us the grace to look into the face of this psalm and the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and to hear what you have to say and to be strengthened, to be directed, to be given hope. We pray, Lord, that you grant help in the preaching of your word and in the hearing of it so that we may glorify you in our troubles below. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, saints of the Lord, summer is coming to a close. And maybe it hasn't been all that we'd hoped for. Summer is often, or thought of at least, as a time of vacations and carefree living, longer days, barbecues, beaches, and all that kind of stuff. But maybe we look back over this past summer and we say, this is not the summer I wanted. It's not the summer I'd hoped for. Maybe we said over the whole past year. Maybe it was last summer. Is there something wrong with me? My life has trouble. My life has sorrow. Is this really how a Christian is supposed to live? Joel Osteen says I can have my best life now. This doesn't seem like the best life. Well, we don't worship at the feet of Joel Osteen, but at the feet of God, whose word is much more reliable, isn't it? Because as you turn to the word of God, you discover that in between, until Jesus comes, we live in this tension of possessing these great promises and victory in Christ and enduring loss and pain and sorrow. And it's the book of Psalms that's particularly helpful in 
showing to us a realistic view of the Christian life. And God shows us that the experience of believers is varied. It's not all boisterous joy and glad songs. There are songs of confusion and songs of grief and songs of questioning. This morning we look at a lament. Last Sunday night we we saw a hymn of praise to the sovereign God, but now this morning a lament. Boys and girls, our parents teach us not to complain, and now this morning God is teaching us how to complain. God didn't like certain kinds of complaints. The Israelites found that out in the wilderness when they complained against him and he brought judgment. But God does like other kinds of complaints. This is a psalm of complaint, a psalm of lament, a a cry to God out of need. And this is a psalm, not just that some man somewhere wrote, and it probably is not a very good thing. It's an inspired song that God gave his church to sing. He put these words into our mouths. Many Christians have felt abandoned by God, and God says, well, here's a song for you to sing when you feel that I've deserted you. What kind of a a king would do that? Can you imagine if, if former President Trump or now President Biden had had written songs for his political enemies to sing about how he had failed them? No, they try to silence those songs. But our king says here, when you think I've deserted you, say this. Say, oh, long, how long, oh, Lord, will you forget me? Go ahead, sing it. Sing it in my presence as part of your worship. What kind of a, a king does that? What kind of a God does that? It's a, it's a marvelous thing. And, and we need these songs. We're not, we're not more mature Christians when we've been able to cut out all these songs out of the Bible and only sing now, now songs of jubilant praise. No. No, then we're, we're ignorant Christians. We need these songs. Carl Truman, in an article entitled, What Do Miserable Christians Sing?, says that in the past year, whenever this article is written, in the past year I've asked three very different evangelical audiences what miserable Christians can sing in church. On each occasion, my question has elicited uproarious laughter, as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. But he points out that the Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. He writes, I am not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of psalms are taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they're a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. And then he writes, A diet of unremittingly jolly hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectations which sees the normative Christian life as one long, triumphalistic, Street party. He points out that Christians in other places in the world, places where the gospel is running with great power, whether in China or Africa or Eastern Europe, they don't view the Christian life as if it should be one gigantic, triumphant street party. They know sufferings. 
And the Bible, characters, whether Abraham or Joseph or David or Jeremiah, knew sufferings. And so he writes, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Does the absence of such cries from contemporary worship indicate that the comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have silently infiltrated the church, making us consider them irrelevant, embarrassing, and signs of abject failure. Why? Why isn't the church in America prone to sing lamentations? Is it because they're irrelevant, we have happy, comfortable lives? Is it because they're embarrassing, they're not the marks of success? We do well as we go back to the Psalms to remember these are God's songs for us, and we need them. We looked this morning at an individual lamentation. That's the category in which this psalm might be placed, as the Lord teaches us how to cry out to him. Now, this psalm, Psalm 13, moves in, in very obvious movements here. God keeps it rather simple, right? Because you've got three stanzas of a couple verses each, and David first expresses his his anguish, he verbalizes his sorrow in verses 1 and 2, and then in the middle two verses he appeals to God, he petitions God, he cries out, and then in the last two verses he he takes hold of assurance, I've trusted in you and so I'm going to sing to you. And so there's an obvious movement to the psalm and I want to look at those three points, the anguish verbalized and then the appeal lifted up and then the assurance embraced and I want to spend most of the time on the first point, the anguish verbalized. Well, David begins this prayer by expressing his deep frustration. Four times he says it, how long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long? It's a great deal of turmoil in his life, whatever the occasion was. We don't know the occasion. Is David physically sick and dying? Is David being hunted by Saul? Is, is David's son Absalom coming to take him down in Jerusalem, kick out his father? We're not told the occasion. In fact, it's interesting when you read a lot of the Psalms, we don't know. And we read about enemies. We're not sure. Is that the enemy of death? Is that human people? What is it? And a lot of Psalms have this generalness to them, which I think is on purpose. Well, I know it's on purpose, but I think it's so that so we can easily apply them to whatever our trouble is. This is a song to the chief musicians. David dedicated it to them, apparently, so that the whole church could use it. And that's what God's Spirit wants, that we would use it. Now, lamentations in the Bible, and there's lots of them, often often have three types of complaints. The believer complains about what he's feeling. The believer complains about his enemies. The believer has trouble even with God himself. This psalm laments all three of those, and it begins with God, with God himself. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? What a profoundly honest expression. I feel like I've been deserted by God. I feel like I pray to you, and you don't care, and you don't listen, And you don't do anything you promised you would do for me. 
What a grief. And how long will it go on, O Lord? How much longer? And then David speaks with regard to himself. Verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? And he expresses now lament about his own internal condition. There's this relentless agitation. I wake up every morning and before I open my eyes, I feel that deep gloom. And I have to ask myself now, what is this that I'm feeling again? Oh, yes, that's what happened. So-and-so is gone. I lost this. This is broken. Now I remember, this is my gloom. I feel it every morning. And I take counsel in my soul. I spin through ideas in my mind about how I can escape this, how I can overcome it, how this can work out for good by some means, and I can't see any reason. And then David laments his enemies. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? All these people want to see me fall. They take delight in my failure. They hope that you will never turn to me again. How long? How long? David's very honest here. He knows that something is wrong. You know, you might, if you, if you didn't know the Christian faith very well, and in fact, I was thinking this morning that maybe next time, evangelistically speaking to someone, maybe I'll take them to a psalm like this. I bet it would shock their socks off to find that this kind of stuff is in the Bible. This is how God invites his people to pray. But you know, if you didn't know much about the Christian faith and opened this Bible up and read that psalm, you might, you might think, here's a person who doesn't trust God. Here's a person who doesn't trust God. And it's actually just the opposite, isn't it? This kind of a prayer doesn't arise from somebody who says, you know, God doesn't bless anyone. God doesn't care about anyone. No, it's the exact opposite. This is, this is a prayer that arises from a person who knows God's promises, a person who's been to the temple and, and heard the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord give you his peace. It's a person who believes God does that kind of thing, and that's why he's complaining, because he's saying, Lord, what you promised to me, I don't see happening. So I'm grieved and I'm confused. Unbelievers don't pray this way. If you thought God didn't exist, you wouldn't lift up a prayer at all. If you thought God was mean and cruel, you wouldn't expect anything from him. But this prayer is the tension of a heart who says it's not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't match with all your promises to me. The priest proclaims on the basis of sacrifice offered, the Lord make his face shine upon you, but I look to heaven and your face is turned from me, it seems to me. And the priest proclaims God's peace over my life, but but my heart's filled with inner turmoil. And the priest says, the Lord keep you, but I've got all these enemies around who, who rejoice in my destruction. So what's going on? How long, O Lord? These are the cries, aren't they, brothers and sisters, that, <clears throat> that come to our hearts and minds as we, as we deal with the sorrows of this life, particularly when trials are long. One early commentator wrote, It is not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession, he bore it with becoming fortitude, but when he could see no end to his troubles, he sank under them. 
Matthew Henry the Puritan wrote, Long afflictions try our patience and often tire it. It is a common temptation when troubles last long to think it will last always. Despondency then turns into despair. How long? Well, there are trials that go long, aren't there? There are marital trials and conflicts that go long. There are trials of waiting for a spouse. How much longer, Lord, till you give me the one I've been crying out for, a husband, a wife? There are are cries, many cries from from infertile mothers, fathers. How long, Lord, till you bless us with children? How long? There are cries over wayward children. How long, Lord, till you grant them repentance? Many cries about health, pain goes on and on, sickness goes on and on. How much longer, Lord? How long? Cries about work, cries about emotional issues, right? There are fears and depressions that set in and try to overcome and try to overcome. How much longer, Lord? And there are temptations that don't seem to let up. They're always there. We have to do battle day after day after day. How much longer, Lord? We ruminate on our failures, and we try to think of solutions, and we wrestle. At least we should. I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, that there's right ways and wrong ways of responding to sufferings. One wrong way, of course, is to, to be defiantly angry and to shake our fist at God. I know better. You are a bad God. I'm turning away from you now. You can ask these questions in defiance of God. The rebellion in your tone, and that's wrong. What we don't always recognize, though, is that if the pendulum swings the other way, we say, I'm not going to ask any questions. It's not ours to ask why. I'm not going to talk about suffering. I'm not not going to feel it. I'm going to be distracted that that also is not the right way to suffer. God calls us to active suffering. He wants us to engage him in terms of what we're bearing. There is a right way to ask why. The psalm does that at times. Why, O Lord? Here the question is, how long, O Lord? And the Lord calls us to what somebody has called a non-passive patience. A non-passive patience. We are to engage our Lord. Some say so quickly it's not ours to ask why. Well, why not? Why isn't it ours to ask why? There's a wrong way to ask why in which we defy the living God. But there's a right way to come to our Father and say, I'm I'm confused. I don't understand this. I can't see how this will be for good. This is not what I expected. It feels like you're distant from me, and I know you've said you love me. You see, the Lord's not into stoicism, the philosophy that says, you know, you never, you're never moved. You never get too overly happy. You never get too sad. You just keep a firm upper lip and refuse to be touched by anything. That's not the Christian life. It's not the way our Savior lived his life. Jesus Christ upon the cross, the man of perfect faith, engaged his God in the darkest moment 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that Christ suffered in a way that we never have to because he bore the true abandonment of God as he suffered the curse on our sin. And he cried out even under the curse in an act of faith, reaching for his God. And because Christ did that, now we're able to join in this prayer. How long, O Lord? You know, if Christ had not died for our sins, then it would be pretty simple. How long, O Lord? Well, it will be forever. I will turn my face away from you forever, God would say. Why, O Lord? Well, because you deserve it. It would be pretty simple, wouldn't it? But because Christ has taken away our guilt and God never forsakes us and he has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Therefore, God invites us to draw near to him by expressing our sorrow before his face. How long, O Lord? That's what we pray through Jesus Christ. And until all God's promises come to their fulfillment at the coming and return of Jesus Christ, this is the pathway of our life, to engage our God in our sufferings. And isn't this marvelous, brothers and sisters, that God didn't just give us some theological textbook that said, you know, point A, uh, number six, I won't leave you. God doesn't desert his people. But instead, he's, he's given us a prayer by which to call out to him and express how we feel. It's a marvelous thing that the afflicted are given liberty before God to speak freely. It doesn't mean that we give vent to our sin, but it does mean that we may speak before the Lord in an open way. And there is a great blessing in doing that. God is not pleased when we give him the silent treatment. When we say, I'm going to bear this myself, I'm not going to talk to God about it. Mark Vrogop, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovery, Discovering the Grace of Lamentation. He writes, Lament directs our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing our hurt, our questions, and even our doubt. Turning to prayer through lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of belief in God. He quotes uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who wrote, It is better to ask them, our spiritual questions, it's better to ask them than not to ask them, because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. Alexander McLaren writes, listen to this, Doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. You see, sometimes we treat our sufferings as just all-pervasive gloom that we dare not look at, we dare not speak about. Maybe we try not to acknowledge or, or we just endure it as some vague mist. And the Bible says, go ahead and identify it, vocalize it, verbalize it, put it into words, articulate it. Lord, I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you've hidden your face from me. I feel like I can't take this anymore, being sad every day. And I feel like my enemies are going to win over me. Well, okay. Now we have something to work with. Now we have something to work on. You see, the Lord God is not afraid of us 
identifying the issue or what we feel that it is. And he, by giving to us this prayer, is saying to his children, go ahead, say it. Tell me your griefs. Set before me what you feel. And the Lord's not afraid of that. It's not a politician who quickly tries to stifle it. Cut off the words before they come out of your mouth. They tell you, you know what? It's nothing, nothing bad, nothing bad is happening. What a glorious God. What a glorious God. Who in his covenant love has sent his son to enter into the suffering. And surely Christ having suffered. God's not about to deny that there is suffering. And he wants us to come before him with our questions and with our doubts and with our fears and with our griefs. And he tells us that this lament is the pathway in going forward. And so the Lord does take David forward from this anguish expressed to now verses 3 and 4, this appeal as David turns now to petition God. And it's rather striking if you look at it carefully that each of his complaints are now turned into a prayer. He had prayed, Lord, how long, how long will you forget me? And now he prays, verse 3, it turns into a petition, come and hear me, consider and hear me. He had had said, oh Lord, how, how long must I take counsel in my soul? But now he prays, Lord, enlighten my eyes so I can see. And he had prayed about his enemies exalting over him, but now he, he says in verse 4, lest my enemies says I prevailed against him. And so now all of his causes of grief and sorrow become now petitions in his mouth as he seeks God's help. And this, of course, is the difference between unbelieving and believing responses to God's grace is that we don't turn away from God, but we cry out and to the only one who can help. The unbeliever says, I tried, God, forget it, I'll do it myself, I'll find someone else to help. The believer says, Lord, you're all I've got. I don't feel like you're here, but I'm going to keep praying to you and crying out to you. So, Lord, consider and hear me. I feel like you've forgotten me, but I'm praying, Lord, remember me. And I'm struggling in my own heart. It's all confusion to me. It's all a blur. I can't see anything being worked together for good here. But now he prays, Lord, enlighten my eyes. Help me see the circumstance of my life from heaven's perspective. Help me see something of the goodness of God in this. Let me look beyond my present troubles. Let me see the end for which you've made me. And he prays about his enemies. Lord, rescue me, lest my enemies rejoice that that I've been moved. Lest they say I've prevailed over him. That's very interesting, isn't it? That David here is, is making an argument to God based, I think, really upon God's reputation. Remember when Moses, in Numbers 14, Israel refused to go in the promised land, and then God says to Moses, get away from them, I'll kill them, and I'll make a great people out of you, Moses, but no more them. And Moses says, no, Lord. If you do that, Lord, then the world is going to say that you killed these people because you didn't have the power to bring them into the land of promise. And God heard that argument. 
And now David seems to be praying here, Lord, if you let me die here, then the enemies are going to rejoice. And your name is going to be tarnished. And the world is going to mock. We can bring arguments before God in prayer. Lord, for the sake of your kingdom and glory, don't let me fall into that temptation. Don't let this sin outdo me. For the sake of your grace, I've told my co-workers that you will provide for my family. Don't let me starve, Lord. Provide for us, lest your name be tarnished. So lament here leads to prayer. The anguish leads to the appeal. And the appeal then leads finally to assurance. Notice that. That David, having offered, begun with his complaint, vocalizes his sorrows and complaint. Then he begins to appeal to the Lord based on God's promises. Lord, do what you've said. And then he concludes in verses 5 and 6 by embracing the assurance. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Haven't you had this experience? Begin with, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can even pray. I can't pray. Lord, I can't pray. That's all I can say to you is I can't pray. I can't pray, Lord, because of this. And then it turns into prayer. Lord, but you said you would do this. Won't you do this? And finally it ends with confidence. Lord, thank you. Because I know you've heard me. And you will take care of me. So I will praise you. Something happens here in David, doesn't it? Derek Kidner writes in his little commentary, however, however great the pressure, the choice still is his to make and not the enemy's. And God's covenant remains. That's really profound, isn't it? However great the pressure, the choice is still David's to make and not his enemies. The choice what? Well, the choice to trust God. It's David's choice to make. He's confronted with with what seems to be forsaken by God. He's got the promises which say, I will never forsake you. I'll work all things for your good. And the choice is David's to make. Who will you believe? Believe the enemies who say you're done for? Believe Joel Osteen who says you ought to be having your best life? Or believe what God's word has spoken? Verse 5, but I have trusted in your mercy. New King James uses the word mercy. It might be more helpful to know that that the word is, is that wonderfully famous Hebrew word hesed which means covenant love, loyal love. It's, it's that word used so frequently in the Old Testament to describe the way in which God has bound himself to his people, his hesed, his covenant love. I've trusted that love. You've proven that love. You've set that love upon us. It will not fail. Christian husbands and wives may become frustrated with each other once in a while, may ask questions like, why did you say that? But they're not about to leave each other. And David is saying, Lord, I have these questions. I crowd to you, but I'm not going to let go of you because you, Lord, will never let go of me. He says, how long, O Lord? How long will you forget me? But he says, Lord, I trust that you won't forget me. 
God is faithful. God has proven himself. And so David can say, I'm going to sing to the Lord. I will rejoice. I expect that you're going to deliver me and I'm going to sing your praise. You might be tempted when you read verses 5 and 6 to think, well, something's just happened. David, David, David prayed and God apparently took all its trouble away. But I don't think that's how the psalm is to be read. David is still in the same circumstance in which he began this psalm. He's still suffering. He's still facing trouble. But he has turned a corner here, hasn't he? The light has broken in. He commits himself to rejoicing, to trusting his God. Now the choice isn't a one-time choice. If it were, then God would tell us that after you've prayed Psalm one, after you prayed Psalm thirteen once, you could you can tear it out of your Bible. But that's not the way this life works. Lamentation is with us till Jesus Christ comes back, and we go through this over and over, don't we? It's it's a constant part of our lives. We have to keep engaging our God in terms of our grief. We have to keep appealing to God. We have to keep embracing the assurance over and over again. But how gracious God is to give us a roadmap here in this little psalm, to pack it so tightly and succinctly, to show us three basic steps, and to teach teach us, as it were, how to to dance, the Christian dance, to grieve, to cry out, to trust, to grieve, to cry out, to trust. And this is how we make progress in our Christian life, never getting beyond the psalm, but learning in deeper and deeper ways to trust the Lord our God. Are you suffering this morning? If you're a young person, you might say no. We're young, we think life is just a lot of fun, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe, boys and girls, you're sick. Or maybe you have people who have hurt you a lot. Maybe there are things that weigh upon you already. But for all of us, there is suffering. There will be suffering. All you have to do is keep living in this world to find suffering. And the question, then, is what are we going to do with it? Suffering doesn't mean something's gone wrong in your life. Suffering... Is part of the life God has given us here below. But what will we do in the suffering? That's the question. Will we run away from God in rebellion? Will we hide from God, refusing to talk about it? Will we come before our God and cry out to him? Will we appeal to him knowing he's the only one on which we can depend? And that because Christ has cried out the ultimate cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We may come to God knowing we won't be forsaken. And we may commit ourselves, Lord, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to sing your praise. And I'm going to believe forever that you have and you will deal bountifully with me. The church is not stronger and our Christian lives are not stronger when we've set aside all the lamentations to sing only hymns of great praise. No. But God has given to us what we need. And we need all the psalms. 
May we use them wisely. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this songbook. We pray you give us the grace to pray each of the prayers you've granted us, for you are wise and know that we need them. Oh, Father, our sorrows at times are so deep. And we do lift up prayers this morning for those who who feel to be in a dark place or who feel overwhelmed. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that, that you give words to speak when we have no words, that you teach us how to wrestle with you when we feel like we can't move. We thank you that you are always there for us, that we have a Savior who sympathizes, a Savior who himself has prayed the Psalms, and to whom we now sing our Psalms. O God, grant us the riches of our Lord Jesus, and may these prayers sustain us until the day when we see our Savior face to face, when every tear is wiped from our eyes, when death is no more, when all things are made new, In Jesus' name we pray, so be glorified among us. Amen.